Welcome to Slow Stories. I'm Rachel Schwartzman, the founder of Connected Editorial and the host and creator of this podcast. For those of you just joining in, Slow Stories is a series that deep dives into the rising slow content movement. In each of these episodes, I interview brand builders, entrepreneurs, and creative professionals who share what slow content means in the context of what they're building and why slowing down and creating thoughtful stories is more important than ever. This episode begins with a story from writer Alyssa Matosi, who shares a ritual that brings her back to the present moment. Here's more from Alyssa. My name is Alyssa Natosi, and I'm a writer based in Northern Michigan. I also run a workshop called AVID, which focuses on finding ways to harness the magic of our daily rituals in order to ground ourselves, slow down, and stop scrolling. A ritual that I find myself turning to in order to slow down is the process of making my morning tea and then watching the waterfowl that live on the lake behind my house as I sit. Making tea is an analog process that requires calm attention and patience. I like to stay present, to take in the aroma of the herbs as they steep, then I choose my favorite mug and sit by the window. Mornings on the lake are always full of life. There are swans, mallards, mergansers, and golden eyes who glide through the waters diving for food and teaching their hatchlings how to find nourishment. Sometimes the water is rough, birds bobbing and bouncing on the waves, and other times it's calm and clear enough to see their little webbed feet propel them across the shore. But day after day, they show up, because to them, the water is their universe, and it's an amazing reminder of the relentlessness of life and how we must all always show up, stay present in this world, and continue to nourish ourselves with what truly brings us a sense of energy and purpose. Thank you so much again to Alyssa for sharing. You can learn more about Alyssa's work online at alyssanatosi.com. Now here's my conversation with Coco Mellers. When the darkest part of you meets the darkest part of me, it creates light. This is one of the many incredible lines readers will find in Coco Mellers' luminous debut novel, Cleopatra and Frankenstein. In this riveting story, readers meet Cleo and Frank, two disparate characters whose chance encounter brings them closer in ways they could never have expected. Throughout the book, readers also meet Cleo and Frank's closest friends and family members, whose own stories add texture to Cleo and Frank's relationship and provide a nuanced portrait of what it means to come together, grow up, and in some cases, grow apart. At its core, Cleopatra and Frankenstein is a love story, but it's also an ode to healing, faith, and the resilience that we sometimes forget we have unless the people who love us most take our hand and remind us that there's life to be lived. For Coco, Cleopatra and Frankenstein may be a work of literary fiction, though it also calls upon what she deems emotional nonfiction. And her own story of transformation and curiosity is a reminder to anyone that slowing down and looking inward is often the only way forward. And in this interview, Coco shared more about what led her to write Cleopatra and Frankenstein and the importance of spending time doing what you love most. It's really a gift to stumble upon a book so transporting, and after speaking with Coco, it was even more moved. And when you hear from the author herself, you'll see why. So on that note, enjoy my conversation with Coco Mellers, author of Cleopatra and Frankenstein.
I am Coco Mellors. Outside of being a writer, well, I'm a daughter and I'm a sister, I'm a wife. I'm a sober woman, I think is a big part of how I identify in the world. I feel very, very connected to that community. I'm a big reader. I take a lot of imagination walks where I walk around and listen to music and imagine things. I think that's something I do almost every day. And the things that I value are, yeah, I think you know, curiosity and expansion. So I I try to live a life where I give myself space to have things not be planned and to have my imagination move freely, which isn't always the easiest thing. And I really try my best to be kind in the world and to to leave situations better than when I found them with a lot of help from other people. (laughs) I think I need a lot of help just to be a sort of normal person in the world, not causing destruction. But (laughs) I try. I think it's so interesting though that your your walks you call them imagination walks what's your relationship with your imagination these days I would imagine it ebbs and flows yes it really does I think I am someone who I inclined towards being quite anxious and I notice that when I am anxious I busy myself so I I pack more into my life in order to avoid feeling and I think you know part of for me being an alcoholic and also being you know a writer and someone who's pretty sensitive I do a lot to get out of feeling that's something I notice I feel very deeply And I think it makes me uncomfortable. And so I try to rush and busy to get away from that like deeper level of feeling to stay closer to the surface where things are a little maybe less intense. And I find that when I do that, my imagination is not free in the same way. I mean, the unconscious is always working and always moving through for me story and ideas. If I spend my whole day chatting on the phone, doing a million meetings, packing stuff in, trying to earn as much money as possible, trying to exercise, trying to do this, it's not free. It doesn't have that time. (laughs) And thinking time is so important, not just as a writer, I think as a person, just time in which you're not doing anything but allowing your mind to move I've just found that if I go for a walk and I put my phone on airplane mode and I I listen to music it's time where I get to really do that where nothing else can intrude can you walk in LA though that's a serious question I live in Venice at the moment and so it's very walkable that area because I live by the beach so I, I walk along the beach and I walk along the canals I do the same sort of walk almost every day and as my feet move my mind sort of falls into pattern with that and um, yeah, and then I, I sort of disappear off into other worlds. If I don't do it, I really miss it. I learned to drive this year. And when I drive, I imagine things. But I, I've had a couple of, not fender benders, but bump, bumper bumpers. <laughs> so I think I need to keep my imagination wandering to mostly when I'm walking and not driving. I mean, I actually don't know how to drive because I grew up in New York. But I feel like I would fall into the same sort of trap of daydreaming on the road. Oh my gosh, my driving instructor said that to me. He was like, you have to pay attention to the road and not to the people along the side of the road. And I think when you don't grow up driving, when you're in a car, it's like a lovely time to just observe and, <laughs> and sort of be feel free. And, and I just, yeah, I really struggled because I'm like, the, the road is not as interesting. <laughs> I, my, my interest is always geared towards people, not the stop sign. <laughs> so I'm retraining myself. Well, it's definitely evident that you have an inherent curiosity and interest in people, Cleopatra and Frankenstein. I know it's been described as a new New York love story. You might have even said that, but I really just think it's a love story to people. And on the subject of LA and New York, I'd love to kind of have you talk about your time in New York and also share 
what you had to leave behind there in order to be able to create distance and capture those feelings or memories on the page? Yes. I mean, New York, it has an incredible weight in my life. I moved to New York when I was 15 and I left it when I was 30, which has a kind of like symmetry in it. You know, it was truly half my life when I left. And um, I think moving to a city as a teenager, it's a unique experience because I think anyone who's moved knows at any age that experiences are heightened by moving. You know, you're sort of hyper aware of everything because you're learning a new place and you're trying to work out if you're happy there, if you can be happy, if you like it. And then doing that while also being 15, you know, and all the sort of hormones and the intensity and the kind of operatic scale of emotion, which is true to adolescence. Those two things combined meant that my introduction to New York just felt kind of ginormous to me. You know, it just felt like a ginormous city, a ginormous thing to experience. And, you know, the 15 years that I lived there were, you know, such incredibly formative years because it was my adolescence and then my very early adulthood. Just my experience of being there, like, for me, it's a city of people. You're on top of people all the time, you know, quite literally in apartment buildings or under them. And so it was so stimulating. And I felt if you're curious about people, it's just the greatest city to live in ever because <laughs> there's just sort of this never, ever, never ending supply of inspiration around you at all times. I found when I turned 30 that actually I had finished my book at that point. I had finished Cleopatra and Frankenstein and I had written it in my evenings and on my weekends while working pretty much full time as a copywriter. And the way that I wrote that book was with a kind of energy and a hunger and a fear and a drive that was beginning to kind of hurt me, I felt. What I was running on was not filling me up anymore. It was starting to kind of empty me out. So my husband and I decided to go to LA for six months and then I just ended up staying. <laughs> I feel like a traitor because I still love New York best, but I like the life in LA at this point. <laughs> <laughs> I understand that. I've also moved quite a bit. When I say I grew up in New York, it's the place that I've been the longest. So it feels the most mm -hmm. like home. But I was born in San Francisco. I moved around California. I had a short stint in Texas when I was a kid. And then I've moved quite a bit here. I think I've lived in 16 addresses wow. total. Okay, that's a lot. Yeah, everything you're saying, it, it really resonates, especially coming to New York at a pivotal age. I was... 12 when I got here. Oh, wow. Yeah. As you were speaking, just all of those, you know, feelings of a rushing emotion and uncertainty, it took me back. Yeah. It's so interesting because I think you captured such a distinct moment in New York's collective history. You know, it was pre-social media, I believe. So the way that people were sort of relating to each other hadn't been completely appended. And then I, I do want to get into talking about the book, but in terms of stories overall, first I'm wondering if there is a story that you've come across recently, whether it's been an article, a poem, a book, or even a song that has made you slow down or sort of impacted your relationship with friendship, love, or well-being? Mm, gosh, that's such an interesting question. I read a novel maybe a month or two ago. It's a debut by Juhei Kim that's called Beasts of a Little Land. And it's a beautiful, sort of sweeping, incredible history of Korea in the 1940s when they were under Japanese rule and the, their fight for independence. And my husband had read it. He bought it because of the beautiful book cover, actually. And then he recommended it to me. And it took me quite a long time 
time to read. I'm usually a fairly fast reader. It took me a long time. I think just my my own novel was coming out. I was also really luxuriating in this story that was in a different time, in a, in a place I've never been, but had so many emotions in it that I felt, you know, and that it was such an incredible reading experience. I just, I loved that feeling of being totally... I don't know, I just felt swept away by it. And then it was such a gift because I ended up going to a literary festival and then being on a panel with the author, Juhei, who was also, we were on a panel together about being first-time authors. And I've actually never really had that happen before where I've read someone's book. I know nothing about them. I didn't really look into her. And then I met her and I got to, you know, I just, and I got to chat with her. And then we had this dinner that was probably like six hours where we just, it was, you know, the dinner felt, it was another long dinner to reflect this long reading process of her book. So that formed into a friendship. So not only did that book, the friendships in that book made me think more deeply about female friendship, but then my own friendship I formed with Juhei has like sort of continued that exploration. So that's been probably one of the things I'm most delighted by this year, I have to say, is meeting her and reading that book and now getting to recommend it to other people. So lovely. I'll definitely be adding it to my very expansive TBR list. (laughs) I know, never ending. I'm just looking around at my office, which I've deemed the TBR office because all of the shelves are just filled with books I haven't read yet. Oh, I want a TBR office. <laughs> that sounds nice. My partner is like, you know, before you add to it, maybe get through a shelf or two. <laughs> but, you know, in terms of looking at all these incredible books, I want to talk about your book, Cleopatra and Frankenstein. And I actually want to start with the inspiration behind the title, that alone is an element that gripped me. But I'm curious if the figures Cleopatra and Frankenstein came to you first, or were they merely a spinoff off of your characters, Cleo and Frank? You know, the title is so interesting. I always thought that if I wrote a book, I would know the title, you know, just know it from from the moment I started. And this book had many titles before it was called Cleopatra and Frankenstein. And it was actually my mother who read the book and suggested that title, which felt, you know, very fitting since she is also the person who named or titled me. So, (laughs) And she took it from, you know, in the opening chapter of the novel, these two characters, and Frank meet each other and they they have this kind of you know I hope witty banter and this sort of electrifying chemistry they sort of tease each other you know he asks her name and she says Cleo and he immediately says oh Cleopatra you know the original undoer of men you know he's very loquacious Frank he's a copywriter and a ad man and you know he's just very flirtatious and I think his kind of like locus for play and fun is language but Cleo like rises to the challenge you know and she says oh Frank like what is Frank short for and he's like Frank is never short for anything it's not a name that's short for something and she says well Frankfurter, Frankincense, and then Frankenstein. And he says, oh, Frankenstein, yes, that's who I am. I'm the maker of monsters. It's so interesting when you go back to a first chapter and you realize, oh gosh, the whole story was already in there right from the very first meeting. (laughs) But I had no idea. So it ended up being the perfect title because those figures, you know, this sort of the monstrous Frankenstein, although of course in the story, Frankenstein is, is the scientist who creates the monster. And then Cleopatra, who is upheld as this kind of beacon of femininity and desire and, you know, empowerment in many ways. 
it's like the shadow selves or the masks that the two of them wear. And so when they first meet each other, they're playing roles, they're playing a part, they're pulling on these sort of old stories. And as the novel progresses, Cleopatra and Frankenstein fall away and we're left with just Cleo and Frank. Messy, human, in some ways special, in some ways totally ordinary, Cleo and Frank. No, it's really compelling. And the way you build on their story is also through the lens of their circle of friends and lovers. And would you be open to introducing a few of the other ancillary characters? Yes. I mean, just tying back to that like deep love and curiosity in people. When I started writing the book, I work like kind of like an animal sort of snuffling in the dark, you know, looking for the next scent. I have no idea what's coming. So I I never planned for the book to be only about Cleo and Frank. I wrote, you know, one chapter and then I wrote a wedding chapter where a number of their friends and family were in attendance. And I just started to get curious about some of the other people that were there. So there's a character, Quentin, who is Cleo's best friend, who It's a very prickly character, kind of spiky. And I was really interested in what he would be like, not in the group setting, when he drops his guard a little bit, when we see him a little more vulnerable. And I'm always curious about that in life. You know, I love the difference between how we are sort of public, private, in the group, one-on-one, alone. You know, I followed him in the next chapter into another moment of his life where sort of none of the other characters see him and you know then Frank has a little sister who is half black she's mixed race I was really interested in what her experience would be in this community so I follow her into a part of her life separate from Cleo and Frank and it just kind of kept happening over and over again and my attention would get pulled by these characters Santiago the Peruvian chef that makes their wedding lunch I ended up you know in the second half of the book writing from his perspective and he had just such a I loved living in his head he had such a sweetness that I (laughs) the kind of innocence that I hadn't expected and I just I fell in love with him and so for me as a as an author it was you know I worked on this book for five years so what made it interesting to me was the freedom to think, okay, like I get to live with someone else, you know, again and again, I get to inhabit all these different voices and ways of seeing and perspectives, histories. It's thrilling. It's what makes writing fiction, I think, so incredibly exciting. Yeah. I mean, it was just compelling all throughout. And, you know, as a reader, sometimes it'd be a bit jolting to go into somebody else's story for a moment when you think it's going to be a little bit more linear. But I found that, you know, that's not true to life. So it was refreshing to get a sense of the through line through the lens of these other friends and family members. You did such a wonderful job of going into age differences, race, identity and the like. But I'm curious what you think the responsibility is of writing a story that tackles these sort of different lived experiences and also the delicate explorations of mental illness, addiction, and those conversations as well. Yes, it's definitely, it's not something I took on lightly. You know, I think for this book, it would not have been true to the world to write characters who were all white or all straight or all in their 20s. You know, that felt to me that that would have done a disservice to the community that I was trying to write about. But of course, if I was going to write a character who had a very different lived experience to myself, who you know was white and in my 20s, 
it's something that I didn't ever want to assume about someone else's life. You know, I don't know what it's like to live as a man, as a black person, as a queer person. So, you know, the way that I wrote the book is for every character that had a different lived experience to me, there was usually a handful of people in my own life who were of that identity or background who read those chapters while I was writing them and would give me feedback if there was anything that felt like really kind of out of line or not true. And then I also had a sensitivity reader at the very end of the process read the book very specifically through that lens to make sure that I wasn't using tropes in literature that white authors sometimes use that are diminishing or cliched or trite, you know. So that was extremely helpful. And there wasn't a huge amount of changes that came out of that, but the changes that I did make, though small, I hope had a good effect. And I'm very sort of pleased to have done that. I also, I felt, you know, New York as a city, I, like we were talking about, people are on top of each other. So it was always, it had to be a group novel for me. You know, it had to be about the way we affect each other, you know, whether we want to or not, that we don't live in a sort of silo. So that was, I was just so interested and curious about that. You know, it's a marriage story. But how does a marriage affect the people not in the marriage, as well as the people who are in the couple? And so it was sort of fascinating to me to explore. And I also think I always started with an emotion that was true to my own experience. So I, I started with emotional truth. And then I would give that emotional truth to another character and I would see what they would do with it, with their own life experience. So every character has part of me in them, although so many of them do things and have lived things that I've never, ever lived. So it's kind of like emotional nonfiction, while the plot and the characters are very, very, very truly fiction. I think in another interview that I listened to, you mentioned that the book is an emotional biography. And mm. I wonder how much can be said in terms of it being a spoken biography, specifically in relation to the dialogue, which is incredible and really keeps you engaged throughout. That I think, you know, all writers have their sweet spots, you know, it's like we all get our gifts in this life and then, and then we get our challenges. <laughs> and I would say as a writer, one of the things that comes more easily to me is dialogue. And I, I don't know where that comes from or why. I speak no other languages. I am horrible. You know, my Spanish is embarrassing. I learned French as a child. I barely remember any of it. So I don't have an ear for languages, but I do somehow seem to have an ear for, for dialogue in the English language. I can listen to a conversation and hear the cadences of how two different people speak the different slang they use, I can feel it. I can like almost feel it in my body and then I can replicate it. And, you know, I have, I'm in a writer's group and we laugh so hard because some of my friends in the group, they hate writing dialogue and their descriptions of like, they can like walk into a room and describe the furniture and the light. And it is just, ah, oh, they're so, it's, they can do it with their eyes closed. It's so easy for them. And I find that so difficult, torturous. I hate describing furniture. <laughs> and the house and the physical settings, I find it so laborious. I'm like, that is not a gift I was given. <laughs> but dialogue is one. I do notice I'm very chatty as a person. I spend a lot of time. My husband is like, are you still on the phone? You know, I just, I chat away to people. And I think somehow, thankfully, that's been put to good use in the book because if you just give me a couple of characters sitting around chatting, I am so happy. That's like my heaven to write. Just let them chitty chat along for a, a, as many pages as they want. Well, I love, first of all, that you still sit on the phone and talk. I feel like that's an art that's been lost in the digital age. Oh, yeah. So. 
I have to say that I think might be a sober thing. My friend made fun of me the other day. He was like, every time I see someone on the phone, I assume they're sober because sober people, we're always calling each other. We're like checking in, asking how you're doing. And it's like, it's just, it's so much part of sobriety is phone checking. But I agree. It's, <laughs> it freaks people out when I call them. Like I'll call them, they won't answer. They'll text me being like, is everything okay? I'm like, I'm just calling to see how you are. Yeah. <laughs> answer your phone. <laughs> I mean, I would much prefer a phone call versus a text, but it's nice. You know, I think dialogue can be a place or an environment. It can ground you in a setting just as much as describing a lamp or a couch. And I think that's what made Cleopatra and Frankenstein so palpable. And in terms of what's unspoken, this is something I noticed in your book, but it's also something I've maybe become more attuned to as a reader. And I asked a version of this question to Katie Kitamura, who wrote Intimacies, Mm. but I'd like to pose it to you as well. I asked her in what ways is writing about grief the same as writing about power, but instead of power, I'd love to swap that out for love. So in what ways is writing about grief the same as writing about love? I love that question. I saw something, you know, my mother is a therapist and she's a grief counsellor. So she works, it's bereavement counselling. She works with people who have recently lost someone close to them. I think she had said to me that grief is love without a place to go, you know, so it's a kind of arrow without a target or it's a kind of energy that's circling the body and isn't hasn't got a place to sort of release and I thought that was so beautiful that grief is love they're the same thing and what's so painful is that feeling of having this love to give and not having either the person or the place or whatever it is to give it to and that's why I think grief can come in so many forms it it can be a loss of someone or something you had and it can be a loss of something you want that's not coming you know like that feeling you know my sister is is recently divorced and she was saying I feel like I have so much love to give no one to give it to you know and I I want to give it to someone and I thought yeah that it's not necessarily grief for the last person she was giving it to it's this yearning for the new person you know a child a friend a partner so I think this book is it's full of love this book is all about many different forms of love platonic romantic familial And for every single one of those forms of love, there's a form of grief and there's loss and there's disappointment because to love is to sort of feel disappointed sometimes because these are fallible and failing humans and and these characters perhaps more so than than average, I would say. They are are truly some troubled, troubled people and deeply yearning, all of them, for connection and love. And yet they yearn for it, but they don't know how to get it. And the things that they do actually take them further away from it often. So they're all grieving and they're all sort of love struck at the same time. Comes across sentence by sentence. And as we talk more about the story and these characters, maybe we can pause and have you read a passage that sort of introduces this community of people. Yes, I'd love to. So I'm going to read a passage that happens at the sort of end of their wedding day and Cleo is remembering how they decided to get married. So we go into a memory. Memorial Day. It felt like a long time ago now, but in fact, it was only a few weeks. Cleo's student visa was up at the end of the month, and the company she'd been freelancing for as a textile designer couldn't afford to sponsor her. As a last hurrah, she'd presumed, Frank had taken her to his rarely used cabin upstate. 
since neither of them could drive or were particularly domestic, it was three days of unmade beds, cereal for dinner, and pure, private bliss. Now Frank moved to the far side of the roof and attempted to arrange a firework, propping it between two wine bottles. He lurched forward, sending the bottles scattering around his feet. Hey man, Santiago said, coming up behind to steady him. Why don't you let me do this? You go watch with Cleo. Who has a lighter? Frank yelled, ignoring him. He slapped the pockets of his trousers. Someone tossed him one, but it went wide, sailing over the side of the roof into the darkness beyond. Anders appeared through the doorway and exchanged a long look with Santiago, managed to guide Frank back to where a crowd of guests had gathered to watch. Cleo took his hand. It was on the train home from Hudson that he'd asked her. She was drifting in and out of sleep on his shoulder, his cheek pressed against the crown of her head. Cleo, my Cleo. A black ribbon of river rushed beside them, barely distinguishable from the dark fields and trees beyond. What would you think? She could see the chalky reflection of Frank's face glowing in the window. He looked like a saint. What would you think of us getting married? Santiago yelled for everyone to stand back as he and Anders lit the first fireworks. Bright plumes of light shot up behind them, suspended momentarily in the shape of stars. The sky crackled with light. Suddenly, Frank shook his hand free of hers and darted forward across the roof, bent at the waist. He lunged for a rocket and lit it straight from his hand, sending it off at an angle that narrowly missed Anders' shoulder. What the fuck? She could hear Anders yell as Frank ran back. He took her hand and squeezed it hard. Sparks showered down on them. The fireworks gained momentum, illuminating the faces of the crowd on the roof in flashes. Cleo watched Frank's profile in the light. Boom, boom, boom. He was staring up ahead, jaw set, eyes wet and reflective. She had not told Quentin what Frank's actual vow had been. He'd surprised her by requesting to say something at the end of the ceremony, after the usual script had been read. He was noticeably nervous, his usual gregariousness gone. When he finally did speak, it was a single sentence. When the darkest part of you meets the darkest part of me, it creates light. I have chills hearing it out loud. It's it's definitely a very powerful tone that's set for the rest of the book. I think, you know, all throughout, we get a sense of the different struggles or dynamics that are adding texture to Cleo and Frank's story. But something that was surprising to me was your exploration of faith from Santiago in the chapel at LAX to Eleanor with the rabbi. There's one exchange with Eleanor that was really resonant and you wrote that two of my favorite prayers are help me and thank you. And Eleanor Mm. asks, those are prayers? And he responds that those are excellent prayers. He smiles and begins to retreat, then turns back to me one more time and asks, you want to know one of my personal favorite prayers? What? Wow. 
that stayed with me because it is such a potent reminder that faith can also equate to gratitude in a lot of ways. And you talked a little bit about this earlier regarding the responsibilities of distilling perspectives that are different than your own. But, you know, what is your relationship to faith? And do you believe there's a difference between being grateful versus faithful? Wow. I've never been asked this before. And it's funny that you do ask it because I've noticed in my second book, a lot of talk of God coming out and not believing in God and wishing to believe in something. And I definitely think a lot of the seeds for that were planted in this novel. I wrote this book from when I was 25 to when I was 30. And I stopped drinking when I was 26. So about a year and a half into writing the novel, when I realized that I was really hurting myself, you know, I was really, I was doing some pretty serious damage through my own addiction. And part of getting sober is, you know, so people talk about a lot together is a belief in a higher power, in a higher self, or in something, you can call it God, you can call it anything. And God can stand for good orderly direction, great outdoors, group of drunks, like whatever you, it can be anything you want it to be. It just has to be something larger than you. And when I sort of stopped drinking and started having those conversations, I had never in my life thought about religion or faith. I had not been raised religious. I grew up in England, which is a very non-religious country now. It's different to America. Like, no one asks if the prime minister is Catholic or Protestant. You know, no, nobody cares. I grew up in Church of England, I guess would technically be the faith at my school, which is barely registered as a religion to me at that time. And so I never thought about the afterlife. I had never thought about spirituality. And then I got sober and I started thinking like someone said to me, you know, when you drink and when you take drugs and when you, you know, whatever the thing could be, gamble, have sex with strangers, like it's a low level search all the time for a god and I thought oh my god like is that what I was looking for I do not mean god in the judeo-christian sense at all I mean god is in standing for anything you want it to mean that is something loving and greater than yourself and I realized that I had been searching 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 for something to believe in that wasn't me and wasn't man-made, you know, it wasn't sort of of the city, it wasn't of New York even, it was bigger than New York. And I gave that search to my characters, you know, I let them look as well, and they found different things to me. But those three prayers, you know, thank you, help me, and wow, are three prayers that I was taught. <laughs> and I think they're some of the most beautiful prayers in the entire world, you know, wow, as a prayer. I loved that idea, it was so different than what I thought you know kind of growing up with maybe the Lord's Prayer is the only prayer I'd ever heard and I realized that my characters too were looking you know they were looking for connection they were looking for something to believe in that was bigger than the life they had in New York and so I think it's so cool that you picked up on that and it's it's in my second book too and I recently read Jonathan Franzen's Crossroads and he has a lot of that searching in his book as well and I found it wonderful to read, to see another author looking at sort of the same issues. It really took my breath away just because so much of the dialogue wasn't necessarily light, but there was this sort of wit and like bravado and reading Eleanor's sections in particular. It's funny that you say that it's something that's bigger, but at the same time, her mother, I, I forget where in the book this is, but she equates love to being a grounding force and that's sort of what I felt when reading those prayers. It almost seemed like 
that was a moment where each character got to kind of return to their body in a way versus searching. So that was just my take. Yeah, I think that's so true. It's almost like it's something bigger and something smaller. It's something so like infinitesimally small that you're able to come back to exactly where your feet are in that moment. I think in order to recognize those things, it is an act of slowing down, which might be a nice way to kind of shift the conversation to your process a little bit because I'm curious as you tackled some of these things what your relationship with pace was like especially in our digital age where there's a ton of distractions and the way that we've told stories has changed pretty profoundly. Oh yeah this is very relevant to my experience of writing this book which you know I started it when I was 25 it came out when I was 32 so that's a big chunk of my life to spend on one project and I really remember this feeling of being in my 20s and I would go to the library on the weekends often or at night and feeling like I was really out of sync with the pace of the world you know I was watching a lot of my friends have their careers kind of take off and make these projects that took less time and were giving them rightfully so kind of worldly esteem and I thought god here I am still sitting in a library writing things that nobody reads working on a project that's not going to come out you know I don't even know if it's ever going to get published let alone when and I'm feeling like am I just being so silly should I be writing short stuff that I can put on Instagram and then get a following and should I be writing for magazines but I liked this process of being in a book I like books you know so I many times felt doubtful and and kind of worried that I was doing something that was long in a time that, that values fast you know and it was hard to stay the course sometimes you know and not feel like am I being foolish am I giving so much time to something that's a waste but I had to return to even if I never got an agent and I never published the book I loved doing it and how you want to spend your life how you want to spend your time not for any product or for any I don't know fanfare at the end but in the actual moment you're in that was what I wanted to do with my time is I wanted to sit in a quiet library. You know, I worked out at the NYU library, Bobes, so you can see the whole city and live with character and story. And that's how I want to spend my life, regardless of anything that happens as a result of it. It doesn't need a result. The thing is the thing, you know, the time spent writing is what matters. But it wasn't, I don't know, it felt almost like rebellious <laughs> to live that way, to not be able to say, oh, I have this agent and this many followers and this person's waiting for my book. No one was waiting for the book, you know? It was just me. It was just me and this like how I wanted to spend my days and my nights. Now with my second book, which has been a little bit quicker, partly I think because I learned how to sort of write a book with my first book and I, I've used some of those skills. But I try to resist the kind of industrialization of creativity. Even the term workshop, it's an industrial term, cut down, clean up. You know, that kind of language around creating, unconsciously it seeps in and this feeling of like, oh, I'm going to produce a book every two years from now on so that I stay relevant. It's certainly with different forms of literature work, you know, very commercial literature, that is kind of the pattern, you know, but literary fiction, one of the reasons I love it is like, there's none of that. Like you can produce a book every 10 years, like Donna Tartt, and you are still considered to be one of the most 
seminal and important writers, you know. And I think that's so fantastic and so different to so many other industries. So I thought, I'll finish my second book. There was, I felt a bit of that kind of factory farm. Oh, I've got to rush it out, you know, so that, you know, people remember who I am. And I really push back against that internally. And I think the book will be finished when it's ready to be finished. Those are all things I'm actually unlearning because for my entire 20s, I only operated with the product and the validation in mind. And it's been a really hard look in the mirror moment the last few years, but things like slow stories and getting back to my original goal. My original plan was to be a writer and it sort of got diluted into other forms of storytelling. A lot of people are kind of reckoning with those notions that aren't really rooted in this reality anymore. I mean, the last couple of years, especially, I think we've really all had to recalibrate. Yeah, I can. I think especially with social media, this feeling of a built-in audience, if you create something and no one sees it, does it count? Yes, <laughs> absolutely, because you lived it. It's your life, you know? I heard the poet Eileen Miles say something that really moved me. They were saying, oh, here I am, I'm all alone. And then suddenly they caught themselves and they said, I'm not alone, I'm here. I am here, I am with me. <laughs> and I thought, wow, like the lived experience of your life unseen by anyone else because no one else knows what we think no one knows our internal world that is the only thing we have that really matters because it's the only thing we ever actually experience so I felt like if I was writing a novel just to get published which is like five percent of the life of a writer versus the 95 percent which is being with words I was living my life completely backwards you feel you're on the right track? I felt with my book, like, you know, it's interesting writing a first novel. In my experience, it was fiction and no one was paying me to write it and no one was asking me to write it. <laughs> it was my choice. And so I felt given that that is the fact, then I have to enjoy the experience of writing it because that's all I have is the experience. <laughs> you know, at the time, there was no paycheck for the hours I spent on it and there was no audience really, you know, so I felt all I have is the thing itself. And so I was like, I really want to write a book that I am going to enjoy writing. (laughs) So that meant a lot of dialogue for me. That meant, you know, characters that made me laugh. That meant experiences them doing things that I felt were totally outrageous because it made it more enjoyable for me. Absolutely. I mean, I can't wait to read your second book. I'll be awaiting details on that. But generally, as you continue to ruminate on some of these ideas and practices, whether online or offline, I'm curious if there's a question that you hope people start asking you more often. It can be in the context of creativity, love, well-being, the writing life, but I'd love to hear what's on your mind. Ooh, this is interesting. I One, I love the questions that you've been asking me. I really do. They're different than a lot of the ones I get. And they've really made me think, which I really like. I feel like I talk about a lot of what I want to talk about when I talk about this book, because it was so, so much of my interests and my values are in the book. Sometimes I feel startled by the judgment towards these characters, you know, I, I it's positive and negative. And I felt that one of the reasons that I read is, is not to, to have a sort of moral judgment of what people do, but just to have a kind of curiosity about human nature. Why? Why do they do what they do? And I've really enjoyed hearing from readers and talking to readers who have that kind of spirit when they read. And they just want to know more about humans that aren't themselves. 
And so, and I love talking about that. <laughs> That's what I love writing about. It's just, it's so, I don't really write from a place of thinking about like themes or, or having a message to readers. I never really think about that. It just all starts with curiosity and just interesting people, people that I want to spend more time with, that I want to know more about. So I think that's what I'm interested in in life. I noticed that when I was younger, I tried to write about the things I thought I should write about, that I thought would make me impressive. But I found that the best things to write about are the things you like to talk about. So if you pay attention to what you're chatting about, those are probably good things to write. And I was just chatting, not in a gossipy way, I hope, but I would just chat about people. That's, I would chat on the phone to my friend about like whether or not she should stay in her relationship or how she felt about her mother coming to visit. And that's, that was what I talked about. So I thought that's probably what I should write about. Do you read your work after? I do. I mean, this book I do sometimes. I, it was nice to read aloud the part you asked me to read because I've never read that section aloud before, actually. I read it sometimes to pick what I'm going to read at readings. I read something, someone was talking about a fight scene that's in this book where Cleo and Frank go upstate and how they had felt that it really touched on something that had happened in their own life. And they were very like moved by it, which I was happy about. And I kind of had forgotten. I was like, what do they say to each other? So I went back and reread that yesterday, actually, so I could kind of understand that reader a little better. I was like, oh, what is it that she was picking up on? And then I read it and I thought, oh, okay, I see. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I think there's so much more that we could probably speak about just in terms of Cleo and Frank and all of the wonderful themes that have surfaced in this conversation. But I think to close things out, I'd actually love to have you read one more passage from the book. Yes. So this is their honeymoon that Cleo and Frank are in the south of France. And Cleo has, they've had a fight and Cleo has disappeared off with one of the servers from the hotel. She has driven on the back of his moped to a party in the town. She's gotten pretty drunk and she's decided she needs to go back to the hotel where Frank is. So she's just asked the young server if he would drive her back. And he has said no. He's a little annoyed. He's annoyed that she's leaving and that she has rebuffed his romantic advances. That's what's just happened. Cleo stared at him. Then she turned and began walking along the quiet street, past the row of street lamps casting their sulfurous pools of light toward the main road. The boy yelled something after her in French she didn't understand. She stuck her middle finger in the air above her head and kept walking. The exhilaration she felt in leaving quickly hardened to panic as she found herself trudging along the dark road that led back to the centre of the town. What had taken minutes on the bike would take close to an hour on foot, she realised. The white balustrade glowed in the darkness. Along the side of the road, banks of lavender filled the air with their purple fragrance. A pair of headlights appeared ahead. Cleo steeled herself against it. Her heart hammered. It could be anyone. No one would know if they stopped and pulled her into the back. The car was just ahead. She clenched her fists and walked. An assault of bright lights, then darkness. It whipped past without slowing down. Her breath was shallow. The light from the top of town seemed no closer. It was interminable, unbearable. She thought about laying down amid the lavender to sleep until it was light. But it was chilly and damp in that part of the country at night. 
In the morning, the lemon tree's leaves were covered in cool drops of dew that burned away in the sun. Another car was winding toward her, a new thrum of fear in her chest. It slowed as it approached her. She was pinned in the twin beams of its headlights, rigid with fear. A dark head appeared from the back window. Frank's curly hair was silhouetted against the purple hillside. Frank's voice was calling her name. And then she was running towards the lights, and the door was flinging open with the taxi still moving, and Frank was stumbling out towards her, and she catapulted herself into his arms, and his lips were pressing hot and quick against her face, her ears, her hair, because it was a miracle. Against all odds, he had found her here, on this dark patch of road, and now everything else was forgotten, forgiven. All that mattered was that he was here, holding her close against his familiar chest, and she knew what it was to be a miracle. Later, as they lay naked in each other's arms, the mosquito net breathing softly around them, Cleo turned to his profile. Frankenstein, she said, tracing his nose with her finger. Cleopatra. Are you okay? From the dive, he asked, not a scratch. No, I meant generally. He turned to face her. I was just stressed about work. We're over budget for the year already and I'm being forced to hire this new copywriter because she's a woman. I wasn't asking about work. Then what? Never mind. She turned to flick off the bedside lamp. Why did you take that bet? She asked in the darkness. Frank pulled her closer. Story, Clay, he said. It's a damn good story. That was Coco Mellers, author of Cleopatra and Frankenstein. You can purchase Cleopatra and Frankenstein anywhere books are sold, though we recommend supporting local and independent bookstores if you can. You can also follow Coco on social at Coco Mellers. Stay tuned as we'll be sharing highlights from this episode on our own channels at Slow Stories Official on Instagram and at Slow Stories Pod on Twitter. I am Rachel Schwartzman and you've been listening to Slow Stories. Thank you so much for tuning in.